peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas said, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the very breath of our holy God. Good morning. Hope all of you are well. Uh, Tim is uh, out at uh, the uh, church in Boron, one of the guys, and uh, he's preaching out there. Um, I was out there uh, once before, so uh, I know he will be well received by them. Uh, they're a, a really great group of people out there. Um, thank you, Joel and, and Ashley and uh, the, the guest members and the regular members of the worship team. That was uh, awesome. That was incredible and uh, a great uh, leading in our uh, worship. If we could open with prayer and uh, then let's dig into the word. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the opportunity to uh, praise your name, to glorify you, to sing your praises, and to hear from your word. Be with us now in your word and uh, that uh, we would be uh, strengthened, we would be edified. Uh, be with Tim and Lisa and uh, the people at Boron Baptist this morning that uh, they will lift your name up uh, as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're going to look at the week after the resurrection. Uh, what happened then and why is it important to us? For the last few weeks in Sunday school, we've been looking at the Holy Week, uh, the days and the events leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and we saw the triumphal entry into Jerusalem uh, on Palm Sunday. We saw Jesus clearing out the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders questioning him. 
Uh, we learned of the Last Supper and the garden where Jesus prayed and was betrayed and arrested. We talked about the crucifixion and Jesus' glorious resurrection. So now we come to the events on the day of the resurrection and the week after. Uh, it just helps, for me at least, it tied everything up on uh, what, uh, what Holy Week looked like. Uh, so often we stop at the resurrection and we go back to our whatever series we were in. And, uh, and I just thought this was a good opportunity to, to look past the resurrection, what went on there. Um, a few uh, months ago, maybe a year ago, I did a sermon up here on John 21. So today we're going to do John 20. So um, uh, I don't know yet if I'm going to actually do a series going through John backwards. Uh, but, uh, but here we are today. So uh, we start in verse 19 of chapter 20. It's the evening of that first day of the week. So it's the Sunday. It's Resurrection Sunday. This is still the day uh, of uh, Jesus' resurrection. Um, it says, On the evening of the day, the first day of the week, doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So all the disciples are afraid. They're behind locked doors. They're really hoping that the chief priests don't come for them and drag them away like they did their rabbi, their teacher, their friend, Jesus. This was a, uh, this was a real fear. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the chief priests were, were concerned about the, uh, the disciples and what they may do. Uh, they were blamed for uh, uh, Jesus' body being disappeared from the, uh, the tomb, uh, sneaking past an entire Roman guard and rolling a stone out of the way. Uh, so, um, there, there was this concern that, uh, that they would be the next target. So they're behind locked doors and suddenly Jesus appears to them. As Tim talked last week, we don't know how that happened. Was this miraculous appearing? Did he just walk in with them and, uh, and their eyes were, uh, were clouded, blinded to his appearance and he allowed them to see him? We don't know. That doesn't matter. What matters is they're behind locked doors and Jesus shows up and the first thing Jesus says to them is, peace be with you. Imagine that, you're in a locked room and Jesus who you've been following for the last three years, who you thought had died, and now there's this confusion of the empty tomb and Jesus appears and goes, peace be with you. Is peace really the first thing on your mind? <laughs> You're confused. You're probably afraid, and there's a lot going on. Jesus says, peace be with you. It's a common greeting. It's a simple greeting. But um, in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, the, uh, the Christmas story, the angel says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The angel says that there is going to be peace between God and those on earth whom he is well pleased. And Jesus comes to the disciples and says, peace be with you. 
finally, God has enabled there to be peace between himself and man. And when Jesus shows the disciples his hands and his side, he's showing the way that peace was accomplished. This is no idle greeting. This is no just, hi, y'all. This is, peace has come to you through Jesus Christ, their Lord. This is Jesus' victory over sin and death. The disciples were glad to see the Lord, but there must have been a flood of emotion and thoughts going through, uh, through their minds at that moment. Uh, just imagine everything that's, that's packed into that moment. So Luke chapter 24, if you want to go there in your Bibles, um, uh, gives us a little more of what went on. Luke 24, starting in verse 36. And they were talking about these things. Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So Jesus offers to the disciples to touch him and see that he's a real, living, breathing, physical man. He then asks for something to eat. They give him a piece of fish, which he eats in front of them. He demonstrates to us that the resurrection was a real event in history, and it was a physical event. Now, I've been studying and preparing for this lesson for a while. Um, and uh, as you know, I've talked, shared before, uh, there's Saturday morning coffee. Kathy and I get up, we have breakfast. And then we tend to sit down after breakfast with a cup of coffee out in the living room, and we just talk. But it tends to end up being about what we're going to be teaching this week, uh, the next day, this morning, um, things like that. Obviously, this is on my mind. We started a new series in First Thessalonians in Sunday school, so we talked about that. We just finished Micah in Bible study, and we're starting Nahum. We talked about that. But this was one of the big issues we were talking about was this passage here. While we're talking, two Jehovah's Witness ladies came to our door. So Kathy went out to speak to them. Uh, I tend to be frightening when people open the door, and I, like, fill the door frame. So she goes and talks to them, and they're sharing about the Last Supper. And their point was that this was the Last Supper Jesus would ever have because Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in a physical resurrection of Jesus or most others. And they've got this really um, weird thing about the 144,000. So we have spent all week, I've spent all week preparing for this sermon. Kathy and I were just finishing talking about this passage. Talk about these two poor ladies walking into it. <laughs> Kathy proclaimed the resurrection in real terms from Scripture, from right here. 
and they literally started mumbling a word salad about 14 Nissan and then walked away. <laughs> the, when faced with the evidence of the physical, actual resurrection of Jesus from Scripture, it's irrefutable. Jesus rose from the dead. Besides his victory over sin and death, we need to understand that his resurrection is a promise to us of our resurrection someday. That we will have a physical glorified body and be with God in a physical sense. And that's important. And it was important for Jesus to show that to the disciples and to show it to us. So let's shift back to John chapter 20. In verse 21, he says to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> this is the moment they are called apostles. Because they are, apostle means messenger. Or one who is sent. Jesus commissions them as, apostle, as apostles. And then he bestows on them the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's, there's discussion, is this the moment they are indwelt with the Holy Spirit? Did that happen on the day of Pentecost? Yeah, whatever. Uh, he breathes the Holy Spirit to them. And he commissions them. And it's cool. But what's really cool is here in two verses we see the entire the entirety of the Trinity involved in the salvation of man. If you ever have a question, if somebody questions you about the Trinity, come here to John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22. We see the Father sending the Son who sends the Holy Spirit for the equipping of the saints to fulfill the commission that had just been given to them. That's one of the wonderful things about our life in Christ is God calls us to something and sometimes it's big and sometimes it's massive and sometimes it's impossible and God says, and here's the tools to do it. If God calls you to something impossible, it's because he's going to do it. And here he says, I'm calling you to go out to the world as messengers and share the gospel. And here is the Holy Spirit, so you can accomplish that. And, and on top of our salvation, then we were backstopped with, we're not in this alone. Jesus doesn't say, you're saved and send us away. He says in verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So is he saying the disciples can now forgive sins? No. <laughs> to say they are forgiven is withheld. Um, and uh, this is where I always mess up because I start talking about the Greek. It is the Greek perfect tense verb. The perfect tense verb gives the sense of a past completed action with a continuing or ongoing results in the present. So this can be translated, they have been forgiven and it has been withheld. It's recognizing what God has already done. The idea stated is not that any church or any Christian is able to forgive or withhold forgiveness of sins, 
but proclaiming what God has already faithfully done. God has already done the work. Our job is to go out and proclaim it, talk about it. We're, we go out in the Great Commission to proclaim the gospel, to preach the word of salvation to everybody. The results are on God for his glory. So now we come to this, this great passage, Doubting Thomas. So chapter uh, 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands and hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So Thomas is out doing something. At least one commentator points out that while the other ten disciples had locked themselves in a room, Thomas was out doing something. He's outside of the room. He's doing something. The idea suggested is Thomas was the only one who wasn't afraid and has gone to get supplies. Maybe not. Maybe There's no proof of that. But the point was is it states that they were afraid of the Jews and Thomas wasn't behind the locked doors with them. So evidently all this happened on Resurrection Sunday. Thomas was gone. Jesus appeared to the disciples, talked to them. From Luke, we hear that he ate a piece of broiled fish. Um, he, he showed them that he was a physical, real man in a resurrected body. Jesus left. Thomas walks in the door. And they go, you wouldn't believe what just happened. You should have been here. And what is Thomas's reply? And we have this famous moment where doubting Thomas gets his name. Thomas says he will never believe that Jesus is raised from the dead unless he places his finger in the nail holes in Jesus's hand and his hand into Jesus's pierced side. That's a pretty bold demand. That's a pretty bold demand to say to the Messiah, to God, these are my conditions to believe in you. And then he does the thing that everyone always regrets. Never say never. <laughs> never say, I will never believe unless this happens. Because God takes those challenges as seriously. Um, so we talk about him being Doubting Thomas. He's been named Doubting Thomas for, for millennia. I think Thomas was actually an engineer. <laughs> he, he wants more data to arrive at a conclusion. All the engineers in the rooms are going, yep. <laughs> He's an engineer. He wants to find out more before he makes a conclusion. Um, Thomas was probably not always a doubter. Uh, he seems to have possibly just been a pessimist. He just had this pessimistic or, or realistic outlook. In John chapter 11, uh, verse 16, where Jesus is leaving to go raise Lazarus from the dead, 
The disciples were afraid that Jesus might be stoned if he went back to Judea because they had tried before. And verse 16 says, So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Um, if you hear that in the voice of Eeyore the donkey from Winnie the Pooh, I don't blame you. The idea that he goes, let's, let's just go and let's just die with him. And he turns and starts walking towards Judea. Uh, there, there is that, that kind of, we see it initially as a fatalistic answer, but also he's committed. We see him being a faithful follower of Jesus in that moment, even if it requires death. And he wasn't called to that at that time. So Thomas had his doubts. He's struggling with the loss of his friend, his teacher, his rabbi. He thought Jesus was the Messiah. He thought he was the promised one who's going to rescue Israel. And Israel hated him. And he died. And then his body went missing. Thomas is having a bad day. Remember, this is the third day from the crucifixion. Jesus has been, was crucified three days ago. He's dealing with a lot. And they come and say, Jesus is alive. And he goes, you guys are crazy. You're just nuts. I, I, how can you even think that? So verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Once again, he greets them that way. So eight days later, they count from Sunday to Sunday, so that's eight days. So it is, it is now Sunday, the first Sunday after the resurrection. And they're still in a locked room. Have they been going in and out? Yeah, probably. But they're still in a locked room. But this time, Thomas is with them. Jesus again appears before them inside a locked room and he greets them the same way with the same declaration of peace be with you. What a great way to be greeted. Jesus comes in and says, peace be with you. You have peace because of Jesus Christ. Then he says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Imagine that. To start with, no one said anything about Jesus hearing about Thomas. So he knows Thomas's heart. He knows what Thomas had said. But he shows up and he says, go ahead. You said you wouldn't believe until you saw this. So here, put your finger in my hand. Put your hand to my side. Don't disbelieve. What's wonderful is Jesus doesn't chastise Thomas for his unbelief. We've seen through Jesus' ministry, whenever the Pharisees or the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, come to him, and, and, and he dismisses them. He ignores them. He, 
he, he condemns them. Thomas says, I won't believe, but he doesn't condemn him for insisting on proof that Jesus was alive. He doesn't contem condemn him for saying that he refuses to believe unless God fulfills his demand. Jesus says, put your finger here and believe. Here it is. Believe. So one of the interesting things is, did Thomas put his hand in Jesus' side? If you look at the scripture, it doesn't say. If you go and look at early art, early Christian art shows that he did. The early Christian art shows his hand either in Jesus' side or touching, touching the holes in his hand. But around the Reformation, there's a change, and the artwork changes, and the artwork of that period no longer sees Thomas touching Jesus. So it's interesting. During the Reformation, there's this change away from Thomas touching to Thomas not touching. Notice John avoids saying whether Thomas actually did touch Jesus in his hand or his side. John never says either way. So before the Protestant Reformation, the usual belief reflected in art was that he had done so. And most Catholic writers continue to believe, while Protestant writers often think that he did not. Um... Regardless of the question whether Thomas had felt as well as seen the physical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus, so the Catholic interpretation was that although Jesus asserts the superiority of those who have faith without physical evidence, he was nonetheless willing to show Thomas his wound and let him see it. Now, this tends to be used by Catholic theologian as uh, an encouragement for the use of the physical experiences like pilgrimages, uh, veneration of relics, uh, ritual, and things like that. They, they want to focus on that um, and, and as ways to reinforce your, your Christian belief. Protestant theologians came up with sola fide and said, by faith alone, that, that Jesus' um, that, that faith in Jesus' statement uh, of those who are blessed. So that was just a interesting sidelight is, did he touch him or did he not? And then how different um, uh, parts of the faith believe. It's a dramatic event. Um, the, uh, the episode of Doubting Thomas is, like I said, it's famous in artwork, uh, sculpture, and even plays. Uh, there's a medieval drama probably around the uh, 1400s, uh, which tells the story of the life of Jesus. It's called the York Mystery Cycle. It was in the city of York, and they would have um, wagons, carts, flatbeds, and they would pull up to designated places in the city and perform a scene and then move on to the next one. So the entire entirety of what's called Play 41 is about Doubting Thomas. Play 41 is 195 six-line stanzas on the account of Doubting Thomas. So in the Middle English, 
to perform it. It says, Alas, to woo that were worth wrought, had never no men so meek he'll thought. And then it kind of goes on like that for another 1,168 lines. So um, uh, come see me later if you want the whole thing. <laughs> Uh, that's how that's how significant that's how important uh, to uh, Christianity this moment of doubting Thomas is is that we we express it in art and we express it um, in um, in theater and then verse 28 which is amazing Thomas answered my Lord and my God Thomas proclaims that Jesus is his Lord, but then also makes the astounding proclamation, Jesus is God. This is such a beautiful, perfect bookend to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. A little, down, a little further down in verse 14 of chapter 1, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of only son, glory as of only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the beginning of the book of John says, He is my Lord and my God. And Thomas proclaims, My Lord and my God. A perfectly bookend. There is chapter 21 in John. It's kind of a postscript. Um, but, but here it's, it's concluding it off. Thomas's confession is a statement we must all make to receive salvation. This is not just an idle thing. Thomas didn't go, okay, fine, you're right. I believe. He makes this beautiful, wonderful statement my Lord and my God. And it states that salvation is only through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Jesus reminded Thomas and all his followers that because you have seen me, you have believed. Then he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This, this, of course, highlights the importance of faith in the life of the followers of Jesus Christ. How important, how critical faith is. Then is this today. So what else did Jesus say about faith? Matthew 17, 20. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Don't get that one wrong. <laughs> so how are the faithful of the Old Testament saved? 
the same way we are. By faith and conviction of things not seen. If salvation only came through putting your fingers in the nail holes or into the hands in Jesus' side, there would be a very small group of people who, you know, could be saved. And what does that say about faith if you have to have irrefutable proof? The work of Jesus Christ on the cross is something that permeates throughout all of history. It's that faith is both before and after the event. We are saved by the same promise to redeem us, and that promise goes beyond history. We look back at the, the saints of, of the Old Testament, and, uh, and the verse in Hebrews is before the Hall of Fame, where it talks about all these great saints and by faith. It is because they are saved by faith. And we're saved by faith, and Jesus says that we are blessed because we're saved by faith. Isn't that great? Jesus blesses you because you have faith in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. That it's, it's a practical faith that, is, that establishes our walk, that guides our walk that drives our walk um, in, in this life. It's because of that faith we can live our life with confidence in God's promises. In a way, faith is simply believing somebody's promise to you. If you have faith that Christ is who he says he is, and that he died the way he said he did, and he was raised from the dead the way he claims, that shapes how you live your life. That shapes how we walk. We are confident that because of those things, God's promises to us are true, and God will keep those promises. We have, we have faith that God will be faithful, or God is faithful. Do we need to see the wounds of Jesus to know he's risen? Do we need to look into the empty tomb to be assured of the reality of his sacrifice? Can we not look upon the testimony of the saints, both Old and New Testament, and rest securely in the saving faith God has provided? We can see what God has done and have faith. We can walk by faith, and Jesus tells us we're blessed by that. So 1 Peter 1, um, 7 through 9, says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's the point. The outcome of your faith 
is the salvation of your soul. We have faith that we are saved, that our sins are forgiven, and we will spend eternity with Jesus Christ our Lord. So when those two ladies, unfortunately lost ladies, showed up at our door, they're preaching a gospel that says, after this life there's nothing except for a select few. And Jesus here says everybody can come and have eternal life. Back in John 20, in verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's not just the conclusion. This is still part of the important teaching that John's doing here. John makes a statement that Jesus did many other signs that the disciples witnessed. And then informs us that he didn't write them down. What a, what a tease. <laughs> Our curiosities peaked. We want to know more. What were these other signs? What were these other wondrous things? We, we want to know those. But then there's verse 31. It explains that what is written was so you would believe and have eternal life in Jesus Christ. What is written is completely sufficient for your faith. Do we need more? Is there just one more sign or one more miracle that's going to convince you? Perhaps if you could only put your finger in the holes in his hands. One of the disturbing verses for me, Mark 15, 31 and 32. Jesus is hanging on the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They wanted one more miracle. They saw every miracle that Jesus did. It was all reported to them or happened before them. They said, we need one more. We need you to come down off that cross. Then we'll believe you. John says, no, it's enough. You know everything you need to know to have faith. There are many signs and wonders Jesus performed, but there will always be some who ask for more proof. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Count yourself in that group of those who are blessed by Jesus Christ because you have faith and you believe. Jesus challenged Thomas's doubt, but he didn't condemn him for his pessimism or lack of faith. He didn't dismiss Thomas as not being worthy of the saving grace because he didn't have faith. But Thomas also asked Jesus one of the most famous questions in John 14. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Giving Jesus the opportunity to say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through 
through me. Thomas knew that truth. When Thomas asked honest question, Jesus answered with truth and with a promise. We have that same truth and we have that same promise. Let's close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the telling of the story of uh, your disciple Thomas and that we have this example of what faith can look like. Thank you for giving us everything we need to have faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen.